All right. It's good to see everyone this morning. Good to see some folks back from uh, their various travels around the world. Welcome back. And welcome back to our nice gray and, uh, and, and uh, a bit of a cold and dark Germany. Uh, but uh, it's good to see folks. We are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd like to follow along, we're in Matthew. We're in chapter 22. And if you remember from last week, we're ca- Jesus was in the midst of answering some questions that were coming to him from the two most prominent Jewish factions, uh, those being the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you remember from last week, uh, we went through the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus, and it was, uh, it was a question which reflected their values, what they saw as important. And for the Pharisees, this was their national identity as being Jewish, what made you Jewish, following the traditions of uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you remember, it was a very politically motivated question. It was a question about taxes and paying taxes uh, to the Roman government. Well, today we're looking at a question that is asked by a group called the Sadducees. After the Pharisees ask their question, the Sadducees come up and they ask Jesus a question. Now, the Sadducees, as a group of Jewish people, were much smaller than the Pharisees. But they held a a great influence at the time because, as I mentioned a little bit last week, the Sadducees were a group of, of Jews who were willing to cooperate with the Romans. They were considered the temple Jews. Uh, They had a lot of sway in the temple because of their willingness to cooperate with Rome. And so they were given an inordinate amount of power given the the numbers uh, that actually existed. And they tended to see themselves as a little bit more sophisticated than the Pharisees. They they kind of saw themselves as a little bit more uh, educated, a little bit more uh, elegant in their their whole approach to life than the Pharisees. They saw the Pharisees as kind of... uh, a little bit simplistic in the way they approach things. And so they're obviously at odds with each other just because of their attitudes, for one thing. But the other significant difference was that the Sadducees only considered the first five books of the Old Testament to be considered sacred scripture, which is, you know, Leviticus, Exodus, uh, I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the ones they really considered to be sacred texts. The prophets... The histories of, say, First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, uh, the Book of Job, the Psalms—they all saw those as, as interesting reading, but they weren't scripture. And so, if there was a concept that was not found in those first five books, then the Sadducees did not believe that it was a part of Jewish truth. Now, the Pharisees, on the just to make it clear, the Pharisees, on the other hand, again, the much wider group. Of, of Jewish people considered what we look at as the Old Testament today as being the, the source of sacred scripture. In fact, the attitude of the Sadducees put them at odds with almost every other Jewish uh, kind of sect that was out there. They were unique in this, but they had an inordinate amount of power. And one of the main sources of contention was the idea of the resurrection. Because the resurrection... As a phrase, resurrection isn't actually mentioned in the Old Testament at all, but the idea of being raised to new life, you find it in the book of Job, you find it in the Psalms, you find it in several places throughout the Old Testament. The label resurrection we don't really see until the New Testament. It's kind of like the idea of the Trinity. You don't see the word Trinity in the New Testament, but it's a word which 
kind of encapsulates the concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this contention was very, very strong between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And uh, I thought it would be good today to talk about a little bit about this resurrection thing because I think a lot of Christians are kind of fuzzy about what does the Bible teach about the resurrection, even though it's out there quite often in the Scriptures. So today we're, kind of, we're going to look at it. And sometimes I find that what I'm going to say in the next few minutes comes as a surprise to some Christians. But the Bible taken as a whole teaches that after we die, we don't become angels. That's, one, that's a kind of common misconception out there that we become angels. We don't become angels. Angels are a different order of creation than humanity. We don't become an angel any more than if we were to die, we become a dog. It just, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Becoming one thing is a different. One thing is not the same. We also don't just kind of float around and play harps like disembodied, blessed ghosts. You know, kind of blissing out, floating among the clouds. We don't really know, the scripture doesn't really talk about how the exact process works, but in the end, all humanity is resurrected from the dead. All humanity. And they face a final judgment. In fact, it was, it was talked about in, uh, in the scripture that Patrick read today. And those names that are found in the book of life go to heaven, while those names who are not found in the book of life go to hell. And those who are in heaven are given a new body. And this resurrected body is modeled by Jesus Christ. This is one of the things about his resurrection. If you, if you read the gospel stories, even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was a physical body, which is the reason why he ate the fish to show that he wasn't a ghost, that it just didn't fall right through him and hit the floor. But it was different. It seemed to be outside of the laws of time, space, and, and physics. Like there's, a, there's a time he, he, the doors are locked. It says the doors are locked, and then Jesus appears among them. And it's like, how does that happen? How does he just kind of appear through this locked door? The road to Emmaus is kind of an interesting story because he's, he's walking along on the road to Emmaus. This is in the Gospel of Luke near the end. And he talks to them about everything that had happened. And then when they go to their house and he breaks bread, they, un, they finally recognize him because this is the other thing about the resurrected body of Christ. He seems to be able to withhold being recognized until he wanted to be recognized. Then they recognize him and he disappears. He just blips out. There's something about the resurrected body which is different than this body. And yet it is, still, it is still a physical form. So those in heaven get this new body. And we're finally perfected of our, of our sins, our body, the, the effects of sins in our body, which leads to death and corruption, and the effect of sins within our soul, which also leads to death and corruption, but kind of on a spiritual level. Those things are finally perfected and taken out of our lives. And the end of the Bible has us living in the very presence of God, joined with the very destiny of God. And the Bible ends not with, and this is how it is for the rest of all of history. The Bible ends by saying, this is how this first chapter of humanity ends. And what goes on after that? We don't know. But God is a creative God. God is always a God that seems to be on the move and, and creating. And, and I believe that our adventure of life continues with God. We don't know how it goes because the, the goal of, of this life is to get into a, a renewed relationship with God where we are no longer naive like you see in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve didn't even know they were naked. There's a sort of naivety there, almost like with little children. 
Then we go through the process of the, as a human species, as a human race, of, of understanding what it's like to try and follow our own will and the disasters of following our own will. And you see it in the Old Testament when they demanded a king, when God said, no, you should just you know, follow me. When, when human beings get selfish and want to do their own thing and you keep, you keep having this story of you know, worshiping other gods because they think somehow they gain something from it. At the end, humanity is no longer compelled to cooperate with sin. And we're going to talk more about that next week or in two weeks. But... But we're back, in a sense, back at the beginning. At the end, you're back at the beginning. We're in the presence of God, just like Adam and Eve were in the presence of God. Instead of the garden, we're in the city of God. The tree of life is there. And we're in this place of, of walking with God. The problem with the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Sadducees did not believe a word of that. They would say that was all utter nonsense. It's a childish fear of death. The Pharisees would say, no, this is what we are hoping for. What I just shared with you is also the pharisaical view of what the resurrection was going to be. Now, they didn't understand that Jesus as the Messiah would be that first step in resurrection, which is one reason why they were very threatened by Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. But it's also why, if you read the book of Acts, that, that after the resurrection of Christ, it says that many of the Pharisees joined the early church. And that created some of its own issues because they tended to bring in their Judaism, and there was the big question then, do non-Jewish people who are Christians, Gentiles, do they have to follow the Jewish laws in order to be a Christian? And one of the big issues was circumcision, which we won't get into today. But the idea that, that there is this afterlife was something that the Sadducees just, just disagreed with. And it was, so, it was such a powerful disagreement that one time uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was being tried before this Jewish court called the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. He's, he's on trial for preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, and neither the Pharisees and Sadducees are happy with Paul for preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, but Paul uses this to get out of this situation that he's in, and it says in Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 8, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is kind of a half-truth, to be honest with you. Because Paul's really there because of his preaching about Jesus Christ's resurrection, which is a threat to both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But as soon as he throws out this concept that he is on trial because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead, it says this, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And it says, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Boy, that's a fast turnaround. You know, they, were, they were all wanting to put Paul to death. Paul throws out the concept of the resurrection, and all of a sudden, they're fighting each other. Not only are they fighting each other, they're saying, we find nothing wrong with this guy. What if an angel or a spirit, which was another point of contention, has spoken to him? 
So the reason why I'm giving you all this background is because it, it fits into the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 22. They ask him a question about the resurrection. And they ask him it in such a way that they think this is going to be one of these questions that tripped Jesus up. It's a, it's a gotcha question. So let's read through it. It says, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. So they're just setting it up, and this is true. The law, if a man died without having any children, so that his lineage wouldn't just disappear from history, a brother was supposed to marry his wife, and any children that, that the brother had with this wife were to take the name of the dead brother so that his lineage, his name continues on. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children... He left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Now, to me, the greater question is, why are all these guys dying? But anyways, I think there's a dangerous woman to be around. Finally, the woman died. And then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? So this is the gotcha question. You know, in heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now the answer Jesus gives to the Sadducees is an answer which they did not expect at all. It is completely unexpected. And it's un not only is it unexpected, but it reveals kind of a glimpse, too, of what the afterlife will be, which the Sadducees never considered. They didn't even consider it was a reality so when Jesus offers them this glimpse, particularly in regards to marriage, they don't know what to make of it. And from what I could find digging around, neither did the Pharisees. The Pharisees hadn't really considered this question. It wasn't a question to them because they believed in the afterlife. So they were like, well, yeah, well, I guess we'll just stay married in heaven. But because the Sadducees didn't, they thought this would be a question that would expose the foolishness of the idea of resurrection. But Jesus replies in a way that they don't, like I said, is unexpected. And one of the most intriguing things to us, most of us, is really that which isn't all that important, and that's our marital status in heaven. Because Jesus clearly says, we will not be in the marital relationship in heaven. Again, looking back at it, he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, so he definitely believes in a resurrection, Jesus does, at the resurrection, People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, it's important to understand that he says we'll be like them in this respect, in the respect that we won't be in marriage relationships. It's not saying we become angels. And this becomes a very common misconception. It even plays, some scholars think this is one of the issues when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter to the church in Corinth, the first one, because it seems like the, the people are in this place of trying to be like angels, almost to a point of, of trying to, 
If you're a man, sort of lessen your masculinity to become more androgynous. And if you're a woman, to try and lessen your femininity to become what they thought was like angels. They wanted to speak in the tongues of angels. It seems like this whole angel thing was a big deal in the church of Corinth. That takes some reading between the lines, admittedly. But that's one of the common thoughts as to why the Apostle Paul deals with the church in Corinth in these kind of unusual ways, which he never writes about in any of his other letters. But the real point here is that he, Jesus is clearly teaching that in heaven we have a different type of life experience. We're not angels, but we don't live life exactly the same way we lived on earth. We're not disembodied. We're not just floating around out there. We're not some kind of cosmic, you know, spiritual energy that's joined with a greater spiritual host, kind of like the whole nirvana idea. Our bodies are bodies, and they're perfected. Our souls are perfected, and we live in a very close relationship with God, not just in the sense of spiritual, but even just, you know, there's, there's a sense of immediacy with God. And we, like I said, where we go from there, what exactly that all means, what it entails, the Bible doesn't get into that. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation with this whole issue of sin and humanity finally being resolved. And like I said, in the end, we're back at the beginning. We're off on a new adventure with God. Where that goes, I don't know. The Bible ends with us at the new beginning. Now, if you have Mormons in your family or, your, or in your friends or, or in your relations, like my wife Cindy, we, she, she was born in Mormon country. She has lots of Mormon uh, family around her. The city, the town, can't say it was a city, the town that she lived in is like 97% Mormon. One of the things that Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you'll run into these folks every now and time in Germany. They'll run around and says, Elder so-and-so on their lapel. They believe in this idea of eternal families. They believe that when you die, you become a god, well, if you're a good Mormon, as a man, you become a god of your own planet. The woman that you were sealed to in the temple becomes your goddess, and together she is eternally pregnant. She has spirit babies, which then go through the process of being human beings so that they can eventually ascend to becoming gods. That's Mormonism in a nutshell. And this idea of eternal families is a central part to Mormonism. And you bring up this passage to them, it's interesting to watch them react to it. Because this passage just blows the legs out from underneath that whole idea of, of this eternal family thing. And you'll see them kind of backing up and coming up with all kinds of different things. One of the, one of the responses you'll often hear is, he says, in the resurrection, there'll be no giving and taking in marriage. So if you die single, you stay single. But if you're married, you stay married. It's just after the resurrection, this, this no longer continues. That is clearly not what Jesus is talking about. Because the whole setup from the Sadducees was the idea, whose wife is she in the resurrection? So that's just a little aside. If you ever run into the Mormons, this is a good passage. You just kind of go, first, before we go down your little crazy train of Joseph Smith and the angel Moroni and finding golden plates and all this stuff, what about this idea of eternal families? And then you'll just kind of see them spin their wheels for a while, and then they'll say, well, there's some things we don't understand, or it's as greater than your comprehension is able to grasp, and then they'll leave. But the other main teaching in this passage is far more subtle, but it's important. And it's this teaching about God being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look what he says here. He says, but about the resurrection of the dead. So this is Jesus. This is an important point about the resurrection. He says, have you not read what God said to you? I am. This is one of the few times that, 
that you get a heavy I am statement coming uh, outside of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is where all the big, heavy I am statements are made about Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. Those are all in the Gospel of John, these strong I am statements. You don't see a lot of those in the other Gospels, but this is, a, this is kind of a, a, an exception, except that Jesus is referring very much to the Father. He says, have you not read what God says to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what's he saying here? Well, when Jesus says that, the, that, that God refers to himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's speaking of God, is speaking of himself in the present, I am. And he's speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present. Even though their earthly life has long ended, the, the implication by the I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, instead of saying I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then they died, and now I'm no longer their God because they died in the Sadducees' theology. They just kind of disappear. They're, they just kind of fade away, annihilate it. By saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's pointing out to the Sadducees that God is speaking as if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still have a life. They're still alive somehow. They're still present with him. He is their God. It's not he was their God. And this silences the Pharisees. And they end up retreating. Uh, and the silence of Sadducees, they end up retreating. They kind of they join together with the Pharisees and do some work together. These two hated rivals begin to really work on taking out Jesus together because they can't find a way to dismiss his teachings. So what are we to make of this passage? Well, I'm not sure. Other than it just kind of, like the practical application of this passage, if you have Mormons you run into, just remember this verse. Kind of an interesting one to throw out there and, and watch them chase their tails. But you have to know when you do that, uh, it's not too likely you're going to argue them into becoming biblical Christians. They're just Because they, there already is a way they deal with it, which is there's some things we don't understand or this is beyond your comprehension. You'll just hear that. But aside from that, what I think is interesting about this passage is that it gives us a glimpse into the expectation that we can have as Christians regarding our life in heaven. Like I said, no one is really sure how the process works after we die. We're not sure how the whole time, space, reality thing works. We can speculate, and people love to speculate. But in the end, what is not speculative from the Scripture is that we are renewed as perfect beings. We are renewed as physical beings and spiritual beings. And again, it's the model we see is in Jesus Christ's own resurrection. That is the model of expectation we are to have. That's why he is often called the firstborn of a new race. He's kind of a new thing. That resurrection is like a new pathway for that humanity takes, and we can join him on that pathway by trusting in him, by believing that his death upon the cross for our sins is enough, and by following him, allowing his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be in our lives and to transform our hearts and minds into the image of Christ, being more like Christ every day. That is the goal of the Christian, to be more like Christ every day. Now, do we manage to, to live in that place every day? Maybe some of you do. I don't. But when I look over my life, over the 30-some years I've been a Christian, there's definitely a change. You know, there, and that should be in that place. Sometimes it's like I tell folks, your spiritual walk is a little bit like 
the, uh, the, the Dow Jones ticker on Wall Street. If you look up close, sometimes there's some deep downs, there's some deep highs. But if you step back from it, how it's been over the last century, it's, just a, it's a continual going up. And that's kind of what this Christian walk is like. Very few of us, maybe you're the super spiritual exception, have this smooth, you know, ride going straight up to, to becoming Christ-like. You know, good on you. Most of us have, it goes like this, you know, and sometimes we're down, sometimes we're up. But the desire is overall our lifetime as believers, it's moving up. It's moving closer to Christ. Now, some of you might want to say or ask, which is, which is fair, why isn't there marriage in heaven? Well, the Bible doesn't say. And this is the only time Jesus kind of refers to it, boop, and that's it. There's speculation that can go around it, but everything is pure speculation after that. The Bible doesn't say, why isn't there marriage in heaven? Some say it's because the purpose of marriage uh, is, is no longer necessary. Like we see in Genesis, it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I like that passage. It, it helps us understand that as men and women together, we are the image of God. That... Uh, that women are not something less than man, and that man are not something less than women. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. So, some would say the purpose of marriage is to populate the earth through procreation. While in heaven, it's populated by faith in Christ. And since there is no more death, there is no more need for procreation, and so you don't have marriage. I don't know. That's a speculation. Maybe. Another thought is that we were lonely as a species. You know, Adam is described as not being able to find anyone suitable, and so God made for him a suitable, you know, like from him comes someone like him. But that in heaven we are made whole. We don't have that place of loneliness. We don't have that place of, you know, of a need that's there. So there's no more marriage. I don't know. I have no idea. Sometimes when I think about this, I wonder what my relationship with Cindy will be like. You know, she's been my wife now for over 30 years. I can't really imagine that in heaven. I'll be like, see ya, you know, and not have anything to do with her for the rest of eternity, you know. Uh, I don't know. But the thing that I do believe, and I think is the big point that comes back to all this thing, resurrection, hope, eternity, life, is that God is really the source of our life. He's the source of our life now. None of you had any say in whether or not you were going to be born. None of you had any say, you know, I, I guess as, as human beings, somewhere along the line, our parents, grandparents had some say in whether or not they were going to have children. But who that child was going to be, that unique personality of that child, which has grown up to be you today, you know, that was, no one really had any say in that. And death is just something that comes along. We have no way to stop it. We, we've tried, and, and science is trying to stop death. It's like the big fear human beings have had ever since pretty much we, we started. When death comes into the world, we start freaking out. We, we're, we're making pyramids, or we're making tombs, or we're, we're try, trying to come up with any way. We send people across the oceans to find the fountain of life. All these crazy things we've tried to do throughout history because death freaks people out. What's after that? What's it about? And in God, we have the only, just as God is our source of life to this life that we didn't have any real say in, being who we are or how we are, 
God is also our source of life for all eternity. He's the one that brings in life. He's the one who's the source of life. And in the end, when we're in that place of eternity with God, he's still that source. He's still the one that we are connected to. It's just the sense that we get in heaven is that connection is without any kind of barrier of sin or selfishness. And we go with him where his amazing whatever, you know, you have to remember that God's the creator of the universe. I mean, going where he takes us, I think, will be very cool. And not going with him because you choose not to be in fellowship with him. You choose not to want to walk with him. You choose to stay in the place of being your own God leads into a place of separation from God, which is miserable beyond comprehension. And that place is called hell. And there's no reason for anyone to go to hell because God has provided the salvation which brings us into eternity with God. While we are fallen, and again, I don't believe this was a mistake in the garden. I think it was kind of perceived as, but until Christ comes along, then they realize this is all a process. In that fallenness, we, under, we begin to go through this process as human beings of, of maturing, of understanding, understanding our own selfishness, understanding the grace of God. When Jesus comes, he is the way, the truth, the life. He is that substitute for us to make us right again with God by dying, being that sacrifice for our sins. Why is it blood has to be shed? I don't know. But it's something you see all the way from the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrifice covering sin in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin, which is an important but you know, subtle difference, but it's very important. And by following him, by being joined with him in that final sacrifice, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, we are brought into the destiny of God, the eternal destiny of God. And I think, you know, that's kind of where my mind just kind of goes, what that all means, it's more than my little head can get its head, my brain around. But I think it's going to be pretty awesome. The Sadducees, by the way, I told you last week, the Pharisees, uh, kind of the, the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees are today's Orthodox Jews. The Sadducees, because they were so connected to the fate of the temple, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees disappear from history. They, they have no spiritual descendants. In a sense, their life ended. And it ended the way they expected. There is no afterlife. There is no descendants to the Sadducees. They're gone. Whereas there are descendants of the Pharisees to this day. I find that interesting. I find that very godlike. You know, that he, he kind of arranges on a big, on a big kind of macro level, the micro level of their life ended just like they said it was going to. And so where is your faith? Is your faith in the, in the resurrected Christ? Or is it in a philosophy that we're just a lucky mass of cells that came together and we live, we die, and we just disappear into oblivion? Where your belief is, is where your eternity is going to be. And that's pretty much the message of the gospel and the resurrection. Believe in Christ and have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And your word can be uh, profound sometimes. I mean, it's almost always profound. Sometimes it can be, we get to those places where we begin to think about a future that goes beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding, but Lord, we're thankful for it. Father, I pray for those who may be here today that 
that haven't decided to join you in the destiny of eternity. They haven't decided to join their life to the life of Christ. And I know for many of us that how that exactly happens is kind of a spiritual journey in and of itself. That journey of faith, of trusting you, believing that what you did is enough. Asking your spirit to fill our lives. Asking your spirit to continually fill our lives when we push back and try and take our lives over for ourselves. Allowing ourselves to be transformed by your presence. Allowing ourselves to be humble and submit to you, to you, trusting that what you bring out of that submission is better than what we could bring out of our pride and out of our own strength. And those are things that we all struggle with to a certain degree, Lord. So we pray that as believers, you would help us to trust you enough to become more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And we know that today, words like submission and conforming and all that are kind of, you know, not popular words. But we know that what you have for us is better than what we could imagine for ourselves. And Lord, we pray also for people in our families and our friends who have no real concept of what it means to really be in you. They kind of have a vague sense of believing in a historical figure and, and, a, and a historical act of the cross and the resurrection. And maybe they're confused as to whether or not that really happened or is it just kind of a metaphor. And Lord, may we be able to speak into our, the lives of the people that you put around us to tell them the truth. This is what the scripture says anyways. If you choose not to believe it, that's their business or your business. But this is what the scripture says. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life that no one comes to the Father except by Him. That this life now is just a, a foretaste of what is to come. We have been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit into our lives now as a guarantee of the fullness of being in relationship with You, which is to come. And that we live a life now with our eyes toward a hopeful eternity instead of just a dismal end of the temporary. May we share with them the hope that we have. May we actually have that hope and live it ourselves. And we thank you for you know, those tidbits in the scripture which give us those little glimpses into something that is greater than, than we can even get our heads around at all. And we praise you and we thank you and we seek to follow you, Lord. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.